going to share something um, that has been significant for uh, for us this during this past week. So once again, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. <laughs> Jesus is gangster, right? Like, who's great? Who, 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 who's the greatest? And then he like... I could imagine them standing there hoping that Jesus is going to maybe call one of them out. And he's like, uh, yeah, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Kind of, you know, weeds, you know, moves past the weeds of their pride. And then brings a child and sets the child in their midst. And then he says, I truly tell you, look, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and Jesus just goes deeper than their question. Their question is, who's great in the kingdom? He then pulls a child and says, if you don't become like one of these little ones, then you, you don't even really have a place in the kingdom. And that's shocking and that's startling. And we'll talk a little bit in just a moment about the Jewish culture and uh, the placement of children within their society, within their context. And, and you're going to see why Jesus doing this is making a big statement to these, to, these, to these men. Then he says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly, and here, there's the key. This is what he's getting to. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So let me give you my title for today. And it's Little Ones and Millstones. Little Ones and Millstones. And we'll get to the millstones in just a moment. Um, so last week after uh, service, uh, thank you guys also too. Uh, last week, we welcomed Lifehouse Church, who began meeting here, and what a joy it is for us to be able to share the blessing of this place, the blessing of this promise with another uh, team of pastors, another set of people who have vision and are trusting to do what God has called them to do. And so I want to thank you all for, uh, you know, after our hour of fellowship, which we, we tend to do, I mean, in times past, we, we didn't even have to look at the clock, you know, we fellowship for an hour and plus. Most of you, we have to send you back home. Uh, I'm going to take that as a good thing. We're going to take that as you feel the presence of God here in such a powerful way that there's something about it that you don't want to leave. So nothing bad about it. Um, most of the time, we have to, you know, send everyone home. Uh, and so I want to thank you because I know it's, it's, it's going against the grain of that culture but we had to ask that after our hour of fellowship, and now it's kind of more time on that clock where uh, at 1 o'clock we ask for everyone to then, you know, dismiss and, and try to make your way out of the building. It's so hard to, to say that without sounding like we're kicking people out uh, and then ask you guys to, you know, move, you know, exit the parking lot as well to make room for this other church. So I want to thank you for that. The spirit of, of, of us doing this is not to end any of what God is trying to do at the Dwelling Place Church, but look, but to make room for God's blessing, right, look, to overflow in abundance 
onto others. And we believe in that. How many people say amen? amen. At least if you've been coming to the Dwelling Place Church for a while, we, we have learned that um, the whole spiritual dimension of God and his plans do not revolve just around us. Amen. We have, we have learned that the Lord is, is working on a grander scale. There's a bigger picture. Look, and we're, we're, we're part of all that God wants to do. So we're okay, look, with taking the lowly position and being humble. Amen? How many people say amen? We're okay with taking a lowly position and being humble so that God can continue to do all that he wants to do. This is not to diminish. This is not to diminish all the great things that God wants to do through the life of the Dwelling Place Church. And when we, when we talk about a lowly position, this is not to say that this is to stop all that God wants to do through your life. But we learn through Scripture that God does that through humility. And God does his greatest work when we become most humble. How many people say amen? God can do his greatest work through us as a church but through us as individuals, hear me once more. This is not a point, but it should have been when we become most humble. Because, look, when we become most humble, the posture of being humble has to do with you pulling back on you. Pulling back, look, on your very own presence. Pulling back on your own space. We could say it this way. Pulling back on that human nature of all my rights and all my position. When we become more humble, right, and, and there's less of us, that can only give more room to the person and the presence of God. How many can say amen? So when we become most humble, that allows for God to do more in our life. Sometimes that is the very reason why some of us will say that we see God little or we experience God little, sometimes without even knowing the lack of God or the lack of his movement or the lack of his hand. Like, I don't got, see God's hand here and I don't see God's, you know, footprints over here. Sometimes it's because we got big old shoes on taking up all the room, right? Sometimes we got our hands, look, we got our hands here and we have our hands there. Sometimes we have our big old heads and, you know, our big old brains and our bright ideas. Sometimes it's, it's all, all, all of our lives, look at this, is being geared to how much space I actually take up. And without realizing it, easily could be filled with pride and easily become filled with I know what's best and easily become I'm the, you know, I know I'm the smartest one in the room and, and easily it become, well, you know, I've been through the most hell, so I got, I, I know how this world really works and therefore no one, you know, no one can say anything because I already know and all my experiences and sometimes we give so much room to ourselves and sometimes that's not even coming from a bad place. <laughs> we, don't real, we don't realize the subtle deceit. So then what happens is that then I take up all the space. I take up all the space. And it's impossible, look, for, for God to be glorified. It, look, it's impossible to give God the glory when we have so much weight in everything. And so in order for God to have weight, look, in order for God to truly be glorified, that has to be with us becoming lowly with us taking 
a posture that seems sometimes humiliating. And, and, and now, now, now what Jesus is saying here and what Scripture is not telling you us to humiliate ourselves. But, it's, but just being humble in today's culture sounds humiliating. <laughs> because we live in a world where, at least here, it's, man, like, it's like you fight for survival, right? Like you got to fight for yours. No one's handing no one anything. You know, the world's moving quick. And, and so you got to get in that race and you got you know, you to make, make space for yourself. You have to you gotta initiate. You got you to gotta take a front seat. If not, you get left behind. And so in the conditions of our world, it's, 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 it's kind of upside down to here become lowly. Because in our world, when you become lowly, you get left behind. And no one's helping no one else out unless you got some family members that really care. It's not uncommon for people to be in this world today and have many family members and feel completely alone. It, I, I know personal people who, who are part of the Dwelling Place Church family that have shared. And in one sense, it's beautiful to hear, but it's also sad on, 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 on another sense of reality that the church people are the only family that they have. That's good for the church that we are being the family that we're supposed to be. But it's also devastating to hear that though they have family, there's no sense of real family. So as I said this week um, and last week, we celebrated, we, we, we gave space, we took ourselves out to give space so that God can continue to do all that he wanted to do or, or all that he wishes to do in our community by us welcoming and taking, look, taking a step back and allowing another church just simply to come in here and to worship and glorify God with the vision that they have. And so it was a wonderful time. Um, my wife and I stood and some others came and supported Lifehouse Church and uh, the pastors and just went home. Well, not, not even after that, got to go out with uh, one of the leaders from the church and went and had a great meal in one of my favorite places and that's Olive Garden, just Make a note of that. I'll go there anytime with you, without you. I take gift cards. Praise God. You don't even have to go. You could just send me. Praise God. But um, just saying. Um, and have this wonderful time. Go home and then just, just crash, right? Have that Sunday. How many people know that Sunday crash? You know? just regular day, and, and then wake up to next Sunday morning. Just, just another day, we praised God, we made room for others to be blessed, went and had a great meal, met with a leader, then came home and just, you know, just sit. Then, and then look, just, just woke up the next morning, and then just continued on with everything that, you know, me personally, what I had to do, and, and life just kind of continued for us. Praise God, great. Well, later on the, that week, um, my wife informed me of something tragic that took place right in our very own community. And it actually happened that very same Sunday evening, that same day that we were making room and celebrating in a, a, another church, you know, vision and having a beautiful meal with a leader of a church. And then look, went home, was able to crash and just live my, my, you know, live my life and just, all right, just see everybody tomorrow and, 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 and wake up while, while, while I got to do that and while we all got to do that. 
life completely changed in a devastating way for a family. And so some of you might have been aware, if, and, and if you haven't, but here in our, in, in, in our community, very close to home, that Sunday evening, there was a grandmother and a grandfather together with their three grandchildren, ages 11, 9, and 1. And, and, and as they're driving on their day, probably just like all of us, just went about our normal day. Um, their vehicle was struck, leaving, struck in a way that left the three children and the grandmother dead. And was, what adds to the, to the layer of devastation, that's, the layers of devastation that are there, is that the vehicle that struck them was being driven by a 15-year-old who also was in the car with other minors. I cannot even begin to try to imagine um, how that can just destroy and shatter, shatter a family. Today I want to show you, if you could put up these pictures of what uh, was the Hernandez family. The parents are Mickey and Sabrina, and none of them were in the vehicle. The grandparents, they were with, in the care of the grand, grandparents. And their three children, 11, 9, and 1-year-old baby. Um, and, and Sabrina's mother, lives were just gone. Um, and us being a church that we care so, so much about family. Um, I have the blessing, me and my wife, of being grandparents already with our beautiful three grandchildren, Aaliyah, Faith, and Julian. Um, you just start to, you know, you just start to imagine, you know, or, 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 or you make these connections. And I'm sure many of you, as you have learned of this, um, in a community like ours, I wouldn't be surprised if someone knows someone that has some relation to this, to this family. Um, and today I wanted to take time just for us to, to pray for the surviving parents, the surviving grandfather, the surviving family members, siblings, loved ones, and, and, and pray that God would just be with them in this. Um, My wife was trying to find some more information about, about, about the family, and she was able to just uh, find out that their mother, Sabrina, within this past year was baptized and had committed her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Her, her husband, Mickey, was, uh, was there that day and was so moved with his wife's profession of faith that that day he went beneath waters trusting the Lord Jesus as his Savior and so our prayers are that that faith, look, that is so new to them. Look, this family lost their little ones while they themselves were little ones in Christ. And so I think it's only right 
and just that we as a church family, with these people being so close to us, um, that we would pray for them in this devastating time. Can we do that, church? And um, uh, Pastor Tanya uh, would like for us to also see how we can help support this family. So we, we, today, before we dismiss, um, we'd like to collect an offering for them and in whatever way possible, try to make contact with this family to be a support to them in, in, in any kind of way that we can. And so we just want to invite the church, while we seek to do that, that you would keep this family in prayer and, um, and just an invitation also for us to, to cherish our little ones. Cherish our, our little ones. Uh, that family, those parents were not thinking um, that they would be burying their children and their, and, and their mother um, when, they, when they left the house that day. And so we all know this. Um, tomorrow's n- not a promise that, <laughs> that, that Jesus is, has made to, to, to all of us in, in, in that sense. Um, and this is why we thank the Lord for leading our church in the way that he leads us. Some of us have very false expectations of what God is supposed to do or what he will do. And when there's a disconnect in what we think God is supposed to do and then what he does or what he allows, um, that could be some very troubling times for our faith. This is why we spoke about this last week, the expectation gap. And so today we want to just share with everyone, um, tomorrow's not promised um, to any of us. And here here we are. We're We're just a week away. And it's Sunday, and we're all going to dismiss and maybe go out to eat and drive home with our families. And so today we just want to thank God for the salvation that he's granted to us, for the faith that we have, and we pray for his, for his protection and may his sovereignty um, be real in our lives. Amen? So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray right now, Lord God, we present this Hernandez family, Lord. Lord, our hearts go out towards them, and we ask that your Holy Spirit... Be the comforter that you are, Lord. Father, we pray that this family, as they have recently trusted the Lord Jesus in faith, that they would be surrounded by that church family, Lord. That their church would be their family in this time. Devastation, Lord. We pray for their faith. Pray for comfort that you would send, Lord God, people by their side whether that's pastors and leaders, whether that's other family members, if that's counselors and therapists, Lord, that you would send, you would send people, Lord God, by which your comforter could touch and reach them, Lord. Father, we stand here together as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, and we present this family, Lord. We lift them up in prayer, Lord God, and ask that you would keep them and keep them in their faith, Lord. We ask for their hurting hearts, Lord. Only your spirit can heal, Lord God, and help, Lord God, broken hearts, and only your spirit can truly attend to wounds, Lord. And so, Father, today, this is the trust that we place in you, and we also pray, help us to be a sense of uh, comfort towards them, Lord. So, Father, if when we collect uh, this offering, Lord, we also ask that you would multiply it 
to help this family and their physical needs that they have during this time, Lord. And Father, if you would allow, Lord, may you grant us the opportunity, Lord God, to meet this family and be a sense of comfort and support for them, Lord, to whatever capacity you would have, Lord. So we thank you because we know that you hear us. We know that you, your eyes, Lord, are on this family there, still on this children, Lord, and on this grandmother, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for we know that you hear us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for your time and attention with that. And so how appropriate it is that we read a scripture where Jesus' disciples uh, have a question. They want to know who's the greatest. And, and Jesus to demonstrate what greatness looks like in his kingdom. Um, he, he answers their question by bringing a child forward. And so this is a, a, a radical response from Jesus because uh, this is not the way the world worked. This is not the way how the world would have measured greatness. Now, you know we've been on this journey kind of. We're not in a series of any type, but we've been on this journey with, with Jesus, of him coming into the world, coming into that first century, where when Jesus steps into the world, the gospel writers are, are, are making it known that Jesus is stepping into, look, a world of darkness. The gospels are declaring that Jesus has come, a, a, a light has dawned. And so what does that light look like? Well, last week we spoke about how that light uh, doesn't always or didn't always look uh, how they expected it to look. And so with that concept, we, we spoke about this expectation gap. Again, how we could uh, have this expectation of what God is supposed to do. Um, and there's a gap between what we believe God does and what God actually wills to do. And so... As we're following along, um, we're seeing Jesus as the light. His light has dawned. Uh, he's come with a very clear message, and the, and the very clear message of this is the kingdom of heaven is here, has come. Uh, this is a big claim. This is a big statement. We, we've learned that for Jesus to say that is really to announce the messianic reign, right, what has been promised uh, through the line of David. That, that, that a king, look, would sit on the throne and rule and, look, bring peace, uh, things of liberation, healing, hope, look, justice. Uh, this is all that's packaged in this message. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's, it's, it's not just meant to be a poetic phrase that sounds good. Kingdom of heaven is here so you, you feel good about the day and you look up and if it's a blue sky, that makes sense. It's, it's, it's not just poetry. But for Jesus to say the kingdom of heaven is here now is to announce what the prophets have been speaking about. That one from the line of David would come, that there would be an anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. The one that's anointed is a, has to do with kingship. And so, so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here, it's to, to let it, the world know, to let the Jewish people know that what God promised is here and here it is now. And so Jesus is the light that dawns to them, but they have expectations, and Jesus doesn't always meet their expectations. Well, what do we do see in the life of Jesus? Well, what do we do see in the life of Jesus is that he's very gracious, and he's moved with compassion. 
I would invite you as you read the Gospels, if you went on a journey reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just highlight every time you, you, you come across where Jesus is moved with compassion. You'll come across that several times. And when Jesus is moved with compassion, uh, we see that action follows that compassion. Sometimes we're filled with compassion, but our compassion only moves us to the place of pity. It's like, oh, our compassion is like, oh, I feel bad. That's, that stinks. Sorry. And again, kind of just move on, right? Has there anyone, you've connected your compassion, but then if you really examine it, it really was just pity. Like, <laughs> much of my compassion when I examine now, I look back like, wow, I wasn't really compassionate to any action. I was just compassionate in pity, where I felt bad. Wow, that stinks. And, and man, it was a big thing if I, you know, it's a big thing for us if we actually pray. In many ways, the least that we can do when we say that we have compassion, the least that we could do is offer a prayer. So for us to feel real compassion, the baseline would be at least some kind of prayer. What compassion looks like manifested is actual action. It's where, oh, wow, something has happened, and I'll say, wow, I feel compassion for this person. The minimum I'm going to do is keep you in mind, heart, and present you before the Lord, but for compassion to actually do something, be something, really be meaningful, is for me to actually now move and act. And so let's say, if you say that you're hungry, and I say, oh, man, I have compassion for that person. They're really hungry. And I say, man, go be fed in Jesus' name. Or if you say, hey, man, I'm really, really cold. I say, man, I really have compassion for this person. Be clothed in Jesus' name. <laughs> Jesus' brother James actually writes about this and says, man, what good is, what good is that? <laughs> What kind of faith is that, that, that pities people? And what, what kind of faith is that that pities them in the name of God? Like, be filled, be warm, and then throw God's name on it? It's not real compassion. Why would James say that? Why would James be able to call that out and say, that, that's not real compassion? Because James, the brother of Jesus, saw Jesus, and when Jesus moved with compassion, yeah, he actually moved with the compassion. He didn't just talk about compassion. He didn't just have a sentiment of compassion. He moved with compassion. What do we see Jesus doing in his compassion? He starts healing those that are sick. Look, they're sick. He feels bad that they're sick, so he moves. He moves towards the outcasts who are rejected. He moves in compassion with them. In compassion, look, Jesus even moves towards sinners. According to the Jewish people, are just you don't sit with them. You don't dine with them. You don't have fellowship with them. And this is what really messed up the religious leaders. Couldn't understand why. Why someone claiming that the kingdom of heaven is here, why someone who's making a claim that he's the Messiah is sitting so close to, look, these unclean sinners. And Jesus had to also within his time and in his ministry explain to them that healthy people don't need a doctor, don't need a physician, but sick people certainly do. And Jesus had to tell these parables to show, look, the Father's great love for lost sinners and how heaven rejoices over when they come home. And so we went through some of these parables as well. And so what's interesting is when you read the Gospels, you really see, like, right, this really compassionate Jesus and, 
He's, he's moving towards those that are hurting. He's, he's reaching for sinners. And, and, and so what could tend to happen, and this has happened to me, it's like Jesus is like this guy who walks around with a, like also with like a nice little fluffy sheep. And it's just like this, like this, how have you pictured compassion to Jesus? He's just like the guy who's got like lollipops for kids and he's got, you know, a little sheep who's his pet and, you know. And so Jesus, like in my mind, there was like Jesus is just this real like, you know, chill guy, so nice, and healing everybody, and, and he is. I'm not saying that he, he doesn't. I think it would be pretty cool if Jesus had his own, like, personal sheep that he walked with. Like, that would be pretty cool, like, on a leash and everything. I don't know. Not even on a leash, just, like, whistle he come. That would be cute, right? And so Jesus, right, we, we see him compassionate moving, and, like, sometimes we start getting this picture of, of Jesus but then we come across some text, and it's like all of a sudden Jesus, like, he, like, turns around, and it's like it's a different guy. He's like, whoa, I didn't, I didn't expect, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And then you realize that there are things that really move Jesus. And, and like, like, so, look, someone's sickness or them being oppressed by a demonic spirit could move Jesus in compassion, right? And now here he is coming like a first responder to need and to, to aid. And so you can see him really move like that. But there are times where we read scripture and then Jesus, when he moves, he moves with, with, with such, I don't even know what word, I didn't think this out well. Someone help, but he just moves and he's like, he's really stern. He's very stern, and it's like, oh, the, the little lamb ran behind Jesus. It's like, you know, like, whoa, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know Jesus, you know, like, he, mo- he gets really stern, and he'll say something that's really extreme, and, and look, it'll shock the crowds, but it'll even shock the disciples who've been walking with him day in and day out for, several, for a couple of years now. And it's meant to get them to also go, whoa, whoa. Then, you know. And sometimes that's good for us too, right? Like we come to church, we worship God, and it's great. Praise the Lord, we love God, worship God. Sometimes it's actually good when we get a message that's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, like, okay. Because there are things that really move the heart of God. And so we see this through the life of Jesus. And so, again, I'm going to remind you of what we read. The disciples want to know who's, you know, who's the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't point to himself, and he doesn't point to one of them. Instead, he's like, excuse you guys. Let me show you who's greatest in the kingdom. And what does he do? He invites a child to come forward. Now, this is shocking to them. It's shocking because this does not make sense in their world context. One, it does not make sense in the Greco-Roman world context, a child. A child doesn't have a position of power, authority, or even respect in that world. Now, here's something interesting. Even within the Jewish culture of that time, Jewish children were, lo- were loved, but simply out of just the fact that they're children, but they had no position. A, a-, a Jewish child doesn't have a voice. They are loved simply because they're a child, but that doesn't give them any place or that doesn't give them any status. That doesn't give them a cute seat. That doesn't give them a chair. What happens with a Jewish child is as they grow up, they just get more and more responsibility. 
And with more and more responsibility, that then creates more and more accountability. And as they grow, then that's how respect comes. Responsibility, accountability, awesome. We love, love, love the children, but children don't represent greatness. A child grows up, and based upon their responsibility, they become great. They become respected. They then get to places of honor. They get to them places where now they're worthy. But a child in the ancient world is just a child. Okay? He's just a child. In the Jewish culture, we love them, but sure, that's it. And in many ways, they're, they're, they're only, look at this, they're only good as they are responsible. So you're a responsible child, thumbs up, but that's what you're supposed to do. It's no, no we're, not, we're not celebrating, we're not giving out medals of honor. <laughs> so different than our world today. I mean, even in today's children's sports, you lose and you get trophies. They were not handing out trophies. Participation trophies back then. You're loved because you're a child and you're at the mercy, look, of your parents and the adults and the community. Praise God for you. You're a child, image bearer of God. But you're not getting a trophy if you lose. You're not getting rewarded. You're not getting to be told great if you misbehaved. It's not the ancient world. And so now we go back to the question. Now, how is someone great in your kingdom? Now, this is this is. This is part good and part bad. It's good that the disciples get it, that, 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 that God's kingdom has arrived. But what we see from their questioning, and what we see that Jesus has to explain to them, is that while they know that God's kingdom has come, they don't understand how the kingdom works. And so there is a gap in that understanding. And isn't that so true for us sometimes? Where we've gotten the revelation that the kingdom of heaven has come. and In other words, you and I have gotten the revelation of Jesus Christ dying for us. His blood paid for our sins. And we have the resurrection of new life. But, and so we got that revelation. And that's a good thing. Everyone who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, thumbs up. Amen. Thumbs up. Right? You trusted? Amen. Right? Awesome. You're, great. Oh, that's a good revelation to have. But here's the thing. It's very possible to have our thumbs up on getting the revelation, but not knowing how this kingdom works. And so you could, look at it, you could come right through the front door, praise God, I have arrived, I'm in the kingdom of God, but then it's, it's, it's a journey to learn how, now that you've arrived in the kingdom, how that kingdom works. And so it's good that the disciples can acknowledge, hey, they can acknowledge that the kingdom of heaven, but we see through them and what they do that they don't understand how the kingdom works, so Jesus has to take the time to explain that this kingdom, being in the kingdom with Christ, in the messianic kingdom, is not like being in the world's kingdom. And so look, they're, they're, they're in the world, but what Jesus wants them to understand is that they're no longer part of that earthly kingdom. They're in his. Now, if they were in the world, if Jesus said, all right, they asked the question, what does it mean to be great? If Jesus would have said, all right, whose kingdom? Rome's kingdom? Then he would have got... He would have asked one of them to pull up and drag in a statue of Caesar. And then he would have been able to say, look, this is how you become great. You become emperor. He would have grabbed, a, you know, something of one of the kings, of one of the heirs. This is how you become great in this king. But that's not the kingdom that we're talking about. 
And so in the Roman kingdom, you, you, you show them Caesar for greatness. In the kingdom of heaven, you grab a child. Now he's got the child in front of them. And now all of them are like, whoa, because a child, again, doesn't represent greatness in the Roman kingdom, but it also doesn't represent greatness in the Jewish culture. So they're still like, hmm, what's he going to do here? And then Jesus proceeds to tell them this. Unless you change and be like one of them, you don't even have a place in. Now that's, that's big news because for them following Christ and, and talking about this kingdom talk, in essence, they're already in the kingdom. They're, they're disciples, right? And now, now surely there's probably other people around here. This is... This doesn't mean that it's only Jesus and his disciples. Where did the kid come from that he, that he was able to pull? So it, 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 it gives room to believe that his disciples are there, but there's probably other families. There were plenty of other followers following with their children. And so it's, it, it, it's, it's okay to assume that Jesus pulled one of the child from, from, from a group of followers. So know that there's more probably than just the 12 here. But what he does is he pulls the child, puts him in front of him, and then he says, unless you change and become like little children. Now it's not just about the child, the one child, but it's about little children. He says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so now he wants them to even, all right, now I want you to pause and think. Because you want to know who's the greatest here as if you're already in. And now Jesus is telling you, slow down, let's all take a step back. Um, unless you're like one of these children, then you're not even really in. Now, he's not taking away, he's not stripping away that they're believers, but he's, but, he, but he's speaking in a way to get them to really think about, okay, now that you're here, you got to really, you got to understand how this works. Now, look at this. Why does Jesus then bring a child to be the example of what it means to be great in the kingdom? Well, again, within the Jewish culture, they would have understood that just because you're a child doesn't make you great. That's not what makes you great. Again, you're loved, but it doesn't make you great. But Jesus does highlight a quality within the child or within children, and, and that is what he's trying to get at to them. That's what really makes someone great in the kingdom, and this is what's modeled in children, and he wants them to make that connection. So the child... The child is, an ex- is a way for them to make the connection to a quality, a quality that matters in the kingdom. And so what does he say in verse 4? Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not crazy. It's not 18 steps to greatness in God's kingdom. It's one, it's one, one thing that Jesus is able to sum up how to be great before him. Have you ever prayed, God, you know how, I just want to be used by you. God, I want you to, you know, use me. I, I'm here. I, I, I surrender my life to you. And you start, you know, and I think it's good that the church does this. Hey, so what are your spiritual gifts? What can you, you know, what has God blessed you with? This is good that we learn about those things, you know, and, and so we, we then tend to jump to what's my calling, how God's going to use me in the world, and, 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 and that's good. I'm not saying those things are bad, but, but Jesus doesn't start with spiritual gift things. He doesn't start with anointings. He doesn't start with callings making you great. He doesn't start with, you know, how many lifts you could, you know, how many things from the spiritual lifts 
uh, uh, you know, can you check off that makes your grade and add those up and if they equal to four, then you, got, you know, you're on track. He doesn't ask you if your parents were pastors. He doesn't ask you how many scriptures, you know. He grabs a child and says, if you could take the lowly position like this child, then, yeah, then this is where, this is where greatness is seen. But he's really also trying to say, pay attention, it's not that start humble so that then you could get elevated to a point so that then everyone thinks that you're great. No, he, he's, he's actually saying humility. Humility is greatness. Humility is greatness. Humility is greatness. Wow. I could think of how many prayers we said over this church, God, use us. We've prayed that over the church. God, use us. Use us to reach the community. We usually, we usually when, we, when we do prayers like that, it's usually like, God, give us boldness. God, help us not to be a church stuck in the far walls. And then we start bashing the church, like, like having, coming to church is a bad thing. Don't get caught up in that now, too. Okay, like, like, give us boldness, give us courage. We want to be like, uh, so we can reach the world. God, fill us with a spirit of worship so we can sing praises that your angels cry before you more. You know, like, God, give us word, give us revelation, give us prophetic words so we can speak life into the people. I mean, amen to all of that. I know I say this so much that it seems like I'm knocking those things. I'm not. Just trying to create a sense of, what the kingdom looks like according to these scriptures. Jesus doesn't say spiritual gifts. He doesn't say prophecy makes you great. He doesn't say you being bold and, 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 and buck for Jesus, you know, makes you great. In the kingdom, he says, taking the position of humility, that's great. So now I wonder, man, how many, how many times have we actually just prayed, God, humble us? God, humble us. Because again, what humbling does, look at this. What the humbling does, or humility, or, or being taking this lowly position, takes you, look, from leading, takes you from being in the forefront, takes you out of the, the being, takes you out of filling the space, it, it positions you back, which would then give room for then God really to. For him to be all that he desires to be. For him to do all that he desires to do. And look, when that happens, look, when a person or a people have, look, made less of themselves and have invited God to fill that space, and now you got those people walking together, look, with God, what happens can only be great. Like, what will take place will be great. Does that make sense? Less of us and more of the Lord, what then actually happens will be great. Then there's no one left to question. So how, how, do, you, how do we become great? What do we do that is considered great? God, please do a great thing because we've made the space. And so he puts out the child. And he says, whoever takes the lowly position. Now, he brings the child. What he's not trying to highlight is the child's innocence. 
That's not why he's saying you got to become like a child. He's not talking about their innocence. Look, he's not even talking about their purity. Obviously, and, right, there's a sense of children are more pure than us. They haven't been exposed to the things that, right, they haven't done the things that adults have done. They haven't lived that journey of life, right? That, but that's not what Jesus is trying to highlight. He's not trying to highlight purity. He's not trying to highlight innocence. That's not why he's saying to be like a child. He's not calling them. Now, granted, Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not trying to say not to be pure, but what he is trying to highlight more than anything is the humility, the posture of this lowly position. Because in their culture, that's what a child was. The child is loved because they're a child, and the child's position is not, you know, this grand respect and this all hail, all children, great they are. None of that is that they're, they're, their vulnerability, their, their position in the humble place. They don't tell their parents what to do. They receive instruction from their parents. They don't choose what they do every day. Look, their parents give instruction. They don't, they don't, they, they don't demand and tell the community what rules to have. They, they submit themselves look, to the rules that, that exist within the community. This is a lowly position, and Jesus says, look, being humble like that is what makes you great. Whoa. Whoa. Now, what if we took all of that and just zapped it forward 2,000 years to us? I'm pretty sure if we ask Jesus today, what would make us great today in your kingdom? I believe Jesus would still respond with pulling a child forward and saying, if we could take a lowly position like them, then that's where greatness would be. Because the lowly position gives room for God to truly be the one in control. It, 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 the, taking that lowly position like a child, then we're not given the orders. We're, we're, we're putting ourselves lowly so that God could give the orders. We're, we're putting ourselves lowly so that we don't know it all and trust that the Lord does. We, we put ourselves in that position so we don't call all the shots. We allow the Spirit to do that. And so, then he says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. But then Jesus doesn't end there. My title is Little Ones in Millstones. Now look what Jesus says. He says, if anyone, look, if anyone causes one of these little ones, but then he clarifies something. Look, if anyone causes one of these little ones, and then what does he say? Those who believe in me. So now, right, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus says, okay, now I got to show you. Come here. And then he pulls a child, and then he highlights the humility of the child, the lowly position, and says, you got you to gotta be like this. You got to change. You got you, you, you to have a change because he knows deep down inside. What's the, if, you, if we had to say what's the opposite of humility, that would be what? 
right? This arrogance, this pride, right? He knows that that's what's in them. <laughs> and so he's showing the child to pull out the child's humility before them. says, you got to be like this to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? You, you got to be like one of these little ones. You got to be converted. You got to change. You got to repent. You got to be like this child. Then Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, now who are the little ones? Those who believe in me. Okay. So the little one, sure, the child is the little one. But now the little one, Jesus is going to open it up. Little ones are not just children anymore, as Jesus continues. Little ones are those who have now trusted, those who believe in him. So now let's read with that understanding. So those who have trusted, those who believe, right? If anyone causes those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck, and to be drowned in the depths of the sea? That's when the little sheep would have went. Yo, was this the guy who was just petting me 30 minutes ago? Jesus gets really stern really quick. It's like, you got this cute little child there. Everyone's like, oh, ha, ha. And Jesus is like, yeah, humble yourself like this child. But then he says, whoever causes, look, those who believe in me to stumble? Well, here's what's next. Get a millstone, tie it, look, around your neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea. Let me show you a picture of a millstone. You had a picture? Can you show that picture of a millstone? Here's an ancient millstone that was actually, um, this is a millstone. I'm not sure if you knew what a millstone was. You're going to know now. This is actually an ancient millstone found by a synagogue from Jesus times, and what a millstone was used for, now you see that guy trying to push that millstone? In ancient times, it would, people wouldn't push that. You'd have an animal tied to that, preferably a donkey. Donkeys are strong. And, and the donkey, that, that end where that guy is, he'd be strapped up to it, and then the donkey would just walk in a circle. And as the donkey walked, right, in the circumference of that circle, that big old wheel, that's the millstone, that, that, that millstone will start to roll in, 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 in that fitting there, and what would be placed in the fitting would probably be things like wheat, and then it would grind it. This would be like, you know, co a common machinery of those times, and then, like today, we would have like all these warning signs, don't go near, stand, whatever, because if you, if you fell in there, if you let your little one crawl in there, or you fell in there and that donkey just kept going and you, for whatever reason, couldn't get out, you would be ground to powder like to wheat. I was reading about this. Those millstones could have weighed from 1,500 pounds to, to two tons, depending. And then Jesus says, if anyone, if any, look, let's just pretend we're, we're there. If any one of us, any one of you, cause another little one who's just come to believe to stumble, but if any one of you, if any one of me cause another one of his little ones who just believed to stumble, it's more preferable that before you do that, you, we get one of those. We get the whole church community to get one of those, and then we grab you, and we tie that on your neck, 
and then we have you walk the plank. This is what Jesus says. It's, it's, it's better. It's, it, it, we'd rather the stumbler go into the depths of the sea. Now, there's, this is also a, a way for Jesus to express that. That's a sure death. Like you're not, someone's not coming in there to save you. That's sure death. It's, in other words, it's better for you to be out the picture than for you to just sit here causing others to stumble. Now, where does that language come from to, to stumble? Some of your translation actually use the word sin. But in Isaiah chapter 8, and we'll be in Isaiah this week, so you want to join us. But in Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord is bringing a strong rebuke, not against the nations in that chapter. He's actually zeroing on, on, on Israel and, and Judah. And, 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 and what the Lord Yahweh says, he's basically saying he's coming against them and there's nothing that they can do to stop the judgment that he's going to bring on them. And you know what he describes as his judgment coming and describing himself? He says he's going to be the stone. He himself is going to be the stone that causes them to stumble. Now, this is, stumble is not a picture of him just like some, oh, I tripped, oh, I, you know, I tripped, like a little stumble. No, it's, it's meant to convey the stumble that brings someone crashing down. That's, 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 that's the imagery. That's what, what Isaiah 8 is trying to show, that Yahweh himself is going to look. He's going to bring Judah and Jerusalem for their disobedience. He's going he's gonna to cause their kingdoms to crumble, right, because they have resisted his so they won't humble themselves in humility and take a lowly position. So he's going to humble them by causing them to stumble. But he's the stone, right? So, so, so the imagery is that the, the stone shatters someone. So when Jesus is saying it's better for you to have this thing on your neck and be drowned before you go and cause someone to stumble, he's, he's, he's warning about how it is so important that we do not become people that cause other believers to come crashing down in their faith. And, it, and, 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 and for Jesus, he's so serious about this, so serious about this that he says it's more preferably that this millstone is tied around you and takes you out. This matters to Jesus so much. And he uses the language of little ones because he knows this. Those who believe in him, especially new believers, they're at the mercy of everyone else who claims to be walking with God a long time. The same way how a, a, a child, right, the physical child is at the mercy of their parents and is at the mercy of that community. That that's the, that's, that's, that's the lowly position, the most humbling position to be in. He then brings the conversations about those who come to the Lord, those who have, have just trusted in him. The people who come to Christ, these new people, like, and we celebrate, praise the Lord. How many people raise your hand, stand to your feet, give them a cup, right? For, <laughs> like, give them a cup. They just say yes to Jesus Christ, right? We celebrate them. 
God wants us to take most care with those. How many people have been serving God in this place for, I'm going to go with, uh, man, I'm going to go with five years, five years. Five years, you've been serving the Lord, have a relationship with Jesus. Five years, praise God. Under five years. Under five years, you committed yourself. Look, look at the hands. Praise God. Four years. Four years. Two years. Look at that. One year. Just one year. I would say those, these are the little ones. These are little ones. Little, not because you're less than, but just you're newer in, in, in the kingdom. And then Jesus gives this stark warning to, to the rest. Make sure that we're not causing those, look, to stumble. Make sure we're not doing things in a way that are going to cause others to crash with their faith. Surely things can happen in life that could, this is why it's so important that we pray for this family. Just this family who just lost their three children and their mother. They're little ones. They are the little ones themselves, and we have to pray that this doesn't cause a total crash in their faith. We're praying that they would have faith. And so things can happen. Surely things can happen that could, you know, we pray that 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 doesn't destroy someone in their faith. But what Jesus is highlighting here, yeah, sure, things can happen, but also we can be the thing. What we do to people, what we say to people, we can cause people to crash in their faith. And if I'm honest, I've been that person. If we examine ourselves, have we ever been the person that could... He said, it's preferable that this millstone be tied around our necks. Then I think it makes sense that when his disciples are asking him, who's the greatest? He knows that they're... (laughs) He can sense that they're filled with pride. And, and here's the thing, prideful people are dangerous. Arrogant people are dangerous. People who believe they know it all, seen it all, done it all, like, I've been serving God for 40 years, and, I, and sometimes that person, if I'm that person, I could be the most dangerous person around a little one. I could be judgmental, I could be, I don't know. And they're asking who to be great, and Jesus is like, Lowly position, and be careful if we're going to cause little ones to stumble. You know what he goes on to say? Then he says this, and we'll, we'll get ready to finish. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Here comes Jesus again. It's like, wait a minute, what happened to the, Jesus and the little lamb? Now, this is not the first time Jesus is saying this. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 in his Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking to his disciples, he uses the same language in the context of lust, lust of the eyes. He says, that's that's adultery in your heart. Lust of the eyes is adultery in your heart. And then Jesus would say, if your eyes causing you to stumble, cut it out. And so now Jesus just told them, it's better, look, if you're going to cause someone to stumble, 
Let's just get the millstone and just, let's, just get, let's just take this person out. And they're probably like, oh, my God, I can't believe you would say such a thing. And then Jesus reminds them, don't you remember? If, if, if you cause yourself to stumble, do what it takes. Cut, look, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, then cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, if we took this literally, I'm not sure how many of us would have eyes. I don't know how many of us would have hands or feet left. I think many of us would kind of just be rolling around in here. And if I got to roll into the kingdom of God... If someone's got to bowl me through the front doors, Jesus is saying it's better for you to be bold into the kingdom than for you to be standing with all of your members in an eternal judgment apart from me. Now, he gives this example. Is, is, is Jesus, does Jesus want them to take this literally? Well, Jesus knows the real issues that, that, look, the real issues that defile us come from our hearts, come from within. He elaborates that uh, in another place to them. But he's using the strong language to convey this message. This matters to Jesus. It matters if we cause new believers to crash in their faith. And it also matters to Jesus if we're causing them to stumble. But it also matters to Jesus if, if we have something in our character that causes us to stumble. What Jesus is trying to convey is this. Take the serious matters... Take this seriously and make the sacrifices that we need to make. Sacrifice, cut off whatever it is that causes us to stumble. And that, that's hard to hear because it feels better to walk around like we got this all figured out and we, you know, the church is up and running, praise God. <laughs> like sometimes a church, the success of a church can blind us to the things that have us stumbling. The church grew and everyone's like, you're great, gotta be doing, <laughs> we gotta be, we gotta be. And then some of us are just stumbling. And some of us are causing others to stumble. And this really mattered to Jesus. It mattered to Jesus to the point that a couple of chapters later in Matthew 23, he addresses the, the religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes, these were the teachers of the law. This whole chapter devoted where Jesus just comes out. The lamb is behind him, shaking. He's like, we're going to, we're going to see the Pharisees. And the lamb's like, I can imagine Jesus dragging that poor little lamb. And if you read Matthew chapter 23, he starts, he starts some of your titles might be like, woes of Jesus to the religious leaders. And he calls them out. He's like, man, Jesus is just calling them out. And he calls them hypocrites. He basically says, you guys, look, don't practice what they preach. He, he tells them this. He goes, you guys are not entering the kingdom of heaven, and you're not allowing others to enter in? It's like, why, why Jesus is so bent out of shape? You know what's, what, he's, what he's furious about? is because they're harming little ones. They're causing 
They're causing people who are trusting in Yahweh to stumble. How are they doing that? He knows, one, they're filled with pride. These guys have not taken the lowly position. He actually calls out says, the things you guys do, like when you do things that appear to be good or when you carry yourself in a dignified way, he's like, you're actually doing all of that just to be seen, to absorb praise. and work. So look, you're carrying yourself well. He even gets that far. He says, on the outside, you know, you look like these beautiful whitewashed tombs. But inside, in other words, on the, on the outside, there's this appearance of you being cleansed and sanctified. Because, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. I just want to read uh, one verse from that chapter, Matthew 23, 15. He says this. Woe to you. Look, experts in the law and you Pharisees. So look at this. Them being experts? <laughs> just because you're an expert in it doesn't mean... You live it. Just because you know it, just because you can talk about it, doesn't mean. It says, woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees. And then he says, hypocrites. He goes, you cross land and sea to make one convert, which wouldn't be a bad thing. He goes, and when you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. What, what does he mean by that? Basically, okay, so you get a convert, you get someone to come to trust in the Lord Yahweh, that's not bad. Here it seems like you've made great efforts to do that, cross land and sea is the imagery here. So sure, go out of your way to, to bring in, to convert someone to the Lord, but then once you get them, once you get the little one, once the little one is there, you make them twice a child of hell? As yourselves? Well, he's planning here that once you get them, you get them a stumble and shipwreck their faith. No longer trusted in Yahweh. And now, you know what? Guess where they're, they're destined for the They're headed for the same place that you are. How would Jesus wrap up his scenario with the disciples? After he brought the little one out and then he tells them it's, you know, be careful not to cause these little. In verse 10 of 18, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And then he says this, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. It's like, what? They're probably looking at Jesus like, what? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, here's the implication and when Jesus wants them, he's like, don't, don't, don't think that when you mess with these little ones, that no one's watching. He's trying, he, Jesus goes on to say, for I tell you that they're angels, they're angels. And now here's this implication, like, he's, he now creates the scene like, hey, just because you maybe go and you mess with somebody and they're alone, don't think they're alone. They got angels. And believe it or not, this is where this idea comes from, that, that there are angels that watch over us, or you heard this term, guardian angel. It has some biblical foundation. We never get a whole chapter explaining all of this out, but here Jesus insinuates, he says, when you, be careful don't, that you don't mess with one of these little ones, because guess what? They're really not alone. They, their angels are basically have watched over them, and then guess what they do? 
in here, those angels also have access to God. So in other words, don't mess with little ones because their guardian angels will tattletale on you. Might seem a little weird, but in Jewish understanding, they understood that there were multiple angels watching over them. So for them, this would make, make, make sense. Don't despise these little ones because guess what? Their angels have access. And if they have access with the Father, then you better believe that he knows. The, the, the angels are going to give a report to the Father. And then this just puts the weight on. God's always, God is always seeing. God's always watching us. What a challenge for us. And this is a real challenge because, right, in the, in the scene, it is so easy for us to have the, like, put on the church talk. Praise the Lord, brother, God bless him. You know, how are you blessing all the favor? And, like, there's, like, this language. And then you get in your car, you don't sound like that. And that's okay that you don't sound like you're preaching. But what, not, what, what, what would not be okay with Jesus is that we, we, do, we do all of that. Praise the Lord. God bless you. But then when we go into our car, then we're cursing someone. Like that would not be okay with Jesus. Right? Or God bless you, TDP Church. We love you. And then I get home and then I get with Pastor Tanya and I tell Pastor Tanya, I can't stand these people just can't stand these people it's easy to it's easy to oh it's easy to go there you know in confidentiality you just want to share some burden on my heart I hate these people <laughs> like it could just it could, then you just start, start saying they're rotten or they're, they're this and, and then you don't realize like man maybe the person's not there that you're talking about but there are angels out there somewhere and these guys are listening more than that, however that actually works, the Lord knows our hearts. And so that's where it begins. It begins, and God knows our posture. Will we take the lowly position? Now, how do I do that? If I know that I've been the one that has caused others to stumble by my actions, my words, if I'm filled with pride and arrogance against everyone else, it's not, it's not good. What if, I, what, what if I and my own actions are doing things that are causing me to stumble? What do we do? What do we do? Well, Jesus said this, unless you change. And some of your translation actually says, unless you repent. Some translate, unless you turn around. Unless you change and become, what? Humble. He's not telling you to be a child, literally. He's telling you to be humble. To humble yourself before the Lord. Because that, us really being humble, having a heart to humble ourselves, that is where greatness is. And the greatness will not be that I become great. It's that I've given room and God becomes great. Because God gets to do. God gets to say. God gets to lead. That is how we become great as a church. And we believe, we, we say this, right? Our pastors say it. We believe that God is still, God has so many things to do or God's going to do great things through our church. Let's now start to bring in the concept of the greatness will be what God does. 
And that will be if I become, we become and take the lowly position for him to do it. Not that we're glorified, but that he would be through our humility. And they were wrestling with this, even some of their parents, the disciples' parents. One of the mothers comes up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, when you're coming to my kingdom, you saw my, can my two boys sit to the left and the right? And Jesus is like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> He's like, you, you, don't even, you don't even understand what's going to happen here. And then Jesus, Jesus would go on to tell him this. Because he knew that they had this concept of greatness, and it all had to do with where they sat and how they were saluted. And greatness was always associated with this, you know, the seat that you sit in of honor. In Matthew 20, Jesus would say this, Do you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them? That's how they're getting their greatness, by them exercising power and authority. It was not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Here it is, that lowly position again. You want to be great? Become a servant. And whoever wants to be first, be a slave. You must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be what? Serve? But to serve. And to give his life as ransom for many. The lowly position. And that's why we talk about the greatness of Jesus today. Because of that lowly position. Amen? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the grace of today, Lord. Father, we want to thank you for our salvation, for saving us, Lord. We want to thank you for the grace to come into your kingdom, Lord. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the life that we have today. We do not want to take that for granted. We do not want to take for granted our children's lives, Lord. We don't want to take for granted your hand, your protection, and the grace that you granted us today, Lord. You granted us the opportunity to wake up, and, and in that strength, Lord, you granted us the beautiful privilege to come into your house to worship you together with brothers and sisters who have trusted you, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, for many different kinds of people make up being here today, those that have served you for years and those that have recently trusted in you, Lord, little ones, Lord. All of us are here, Lord, so now we ask you, Lord God, that you will continue to transform us and to renew our minds as we have looked at your word, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord God, that what, what, what I share today would just be further meditation for the hearers that are here today. May they go back to the scriptures, Lord. May they read. May they continue reading. And may your spirit teach them, Lord. May your Holy Spirit continue to give insight. And may your Holy Spirit give personal revelation to us, to them. Father, for only you know our hearts, and you are the one that searches our hearts, and you're the ones that can search our minds. So search my mind, search my heart, search all of us, Lord. But we heard your call today that we must change. We must be converted ourselves. We must repent and be like one of these little ones ourselves in a posture of humility, the lowly position, in a posture of a servant, of a slave, Lord. Father, we pray that you would humble us, Lord. Humble us by your grace, Lord, so we're not humbled by crashing on the stone, Lord. Father, we thank you for the grace, and we thank you, Lord, for your spirit being in us and lifting us up, Lord God, and working through us, Lord, working through us in our very own challenges, Lord. You have glorified yourself, Lord. 
But today, we receive your word and we incline our hearts and our ears. Father, today I also pray if there's someone who has never put their faith and trust in you, that today they would do so. By, by doing that in faith, Lord, with a confession of their mouth, that they believe, Lord, that you are the Christ, that you died for their sins, and that you rose, Lord. With faith and by that confession, Lord God, may they experience your salvation here today, Lord. Father, we thank you and we also pray, Lord, that you will continue to guide and to lead our church, Lord, to lead all of our pastors as we seek you, and that you direct us, Lord, direct us as a church, Lord, minister to us, help us receive further revelation, correct us, Lord, help us, Lord. So, Father, once again, we thank you for all your grace, Lord, and we thank you for this time to fellowship. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.